Um, and now I'm a missionary in Brazil, uh, many years later. So, bom dia. <laughs> um, my beautiful wife is sitting next to my mom. Can you raise your hand? It's my, my beautiful wife, Hafiza, and our friend Haiza from our church. You can put up the slide. So, in Brazil, we are based out of Rio, and I'm serving alongside of um, Iris Ministries, along at a church called Vida Rio, which is Life River. So, every week we go to this place, which is called Jardim Gramacho, and we serve um, the people that are there. They live in a garbage dump, and the people build their homes out of the garbage that are there. And as you can see in this picture, these are some of the homes that are in, in this place. Um, when you go there, it's a complete shock. I remember two years ago going to the mission school and going there for the very first time. And being American, i never seen anything like this. And it captured my heart because these people have nothing. They have no hope. They have no... Uh, nobody preaching the gospel to them. And... and I remember I was like, this is a place that needs people to labor along and, and to really preach the, the good news and preach and give hope. Um, so this is one of the places that we go. And right now we are doing music classes with the teenagers and kids there. Can you put up the next slide? This is the main street um, that they have in, in this neighborhood that's called Jardim Gramashu. And as you can see, the homes are built out of, like, salvaged wood and, and things that they find from the garbage dump, and they build their homes out of the garbage. Next slide. So this is the music class that we have um, every week. Um, we go there Fridays, and we try to teach them worship songs um, because the teenagers really don't have anything to grasp. Like, you could preach a sermon to them, but they don't remember that. But what they remember is the songs that we sing. And they sing the songs throughout the whole entire week. And that's more, you can reach them much further with the worship songs than you can reach them with preaching the gospel to them, giving them verses. So we use music as a strategy um, to, to really get the word in them, really choosing songs that really speak about the gospel, speak about hope, speak about life, and, and trying to change the society. And if you know, like Brazilians are very musical people. Next. Another thing that we do in Brazil is the Iris Mission School. And every January, we have a mission school where people from Brazil and other countries come to be, learn how to be missionaries. So this was our last mission school in January. Um, and we had about 50 people that came from 13 different nations. And all of them are going out and to be missionaries in other places. So... Um, another thing that we do in this same building is that we have a house of prayer. And what we do at the house of prayer is we do prayer and worship and get the church to really pray um, again. Uh, the Brazilian people are very passionate people. They're people that are on fire. But sometimes they get distracted by the, the noise, the, the big city, the Rio de Janeiro. It's like there's no quiet place for them. And, and the house prayer, we call them back to the simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity of sitting with Jesus, knowing him, reading his word, and spending time with him. So, yeah, we're missionaries in Brazil. And if you would like to know any more information, you can speak to me after the service. Thank you. One more hymn before Larry comes to speak to us. Number 434, More Love to Thee. And I'll ask you to rise as we sing. Yeah. 
you may be seated. Larry. Wow, so I brought water bottles up with me. Take a look at this. They have water bottles up here. There's a whole nother two cases down below me, so I guess I needn't have worried. Hello, everyone. Good to see you this morning. We're going to be turning, if you would, to John, uh, actually the uh, epistle of John, the last of the three, John's epistle number three, third John, get my notes out, so just so you know, I tend to speak from up here because I have room to spread out, that's what I really need, one of these days maybe we'll get a larger version of that and then I can go down there but I need room to spread my notes out, (laughs) because if not, it's a little difficult for me. So it's always nice to um, be pleasantly surprised. And I remember, you know, when I I took a trip with my family back in uh, 2011, uh, we went out to see the West. Of course, you know, you can't see the whole West. There's so much in this country. But, uh, but we went out and we saw some really amazing things. We went to Badlands uh, National Park in South Dakota. We saw Mount Rushmore. We saw Yellowstone National Park, Grand Tetons, which is just amazing. And the last major stop we had on our trip uh, was Grand Canyon. We were driving, of course, uh, a lot of driving. Um, and the Grand Canyon is just awesome. It's just this amazing place. You know it's going to be awesome. You're not surprised at that. And yet still, it's breathtaking when you see it. Um, in its grandeur. It's, it's really amazing. Um, so then we left, we left uh, Grand Canyon, and we decided, well, as we're driving home, we you know, stop off at some of the other things to see in Arizona that we really didn't know very much about and we weren't, didn't have high expectations for, but they were right along the way, so we figured we'd stop at them. And one of the places we stopped at was... Um, I'm actually going to set my watch so I remember to try to stay on time. Uh, One of the things that we uh, stopped to see was Petrified National Forest. Um, And again, this was just a a place we were just stopping off at just for fun, not because we really expected anything from it. And it was just awesome. I mean, we were just blown away. If I have a chance to go out and do it again, I think I'd rather spend a short amount of time seeing Grand Canyon, which is really neat, and maybe one or two days seeing Petrified National Forest. 
Um, this is a place, as the name implies, where uh, there's these forests, literally, of petrified wood that have fallen down and cracked open, and they're beautiful. They look like they're trees that are made out of precious gems. Some of the most beautiful stuff I've ever seen in my life. They have the painted de desert there, where you can look out and just see these amazing hues all over the place. It looks like someone, and, and we of course know someone actually did, drew a beautiful painting. It was the Lord who drew that beautiful painting. Uh, there's historical things there. There's ruins from uh, you know uh, Native American groups that used to be there and have left carvings in various places. It's just so much to see in that place. We were amazed at the riches that we found there. And in a similar way, as I came to this book, I found a sort of a similar experience. Because when I was asked to speak, I was given a choice of a few different books. And for various reasons, this was the date uh, that worked out well for me. So I took this topic. Uh, but the third epistle of John, I figured, well, it's pretty short. It's about the shortest book in the New Testament. In fact, in the original Greek, it is the shortest book in the New Testament. Very, very brief. I figured, you know, it's going to be a little bit hard to find something to fill 40 minutes with. And, uh, and that turned out not to be a problem. There's just an amazing amount of richness here. Some of that is because it ties in with some of the larger themes brought out um, by John's other epistles, and some of it because there's some things that are uniquely here. So I would encourage you um, to, you know, Today, of course, you know, hopefully follow along and together we'll look at some of the richness that is in here. But also as you approach the scriptures, don't just assume because you know, a passage is, is short or doesn't seem like it's one of those classic things that you, know, you shouldn't pay attention to it. Because sometimes if you dive deep into some of these um, passages, you find things that you really didn't expect to find. Now what I'm hoping, speaking of finding, what I'm hoping that everyone has found, my daughter was handing these out, is that everyone has a copy of the handout. Okay, I mean, if some people are sharing between two people, that's fine. Um, if someone doesn't, is anyone who doesn't have a copy that wants one, you can raise your hand. Okay. Um, Miriam, there's uh, someone back there. So, um, so yes. So I encourage you to follow along with the handout. Now, the handout is a two-sided handout. It's got two sides to it. Um, the one side is the side that you're not using today. That's the side that on the top of it says questions for further study. For obvious reasons, those are questions for further study. They're really meant to be something that you can use if you have the time and inclination. I encourage you to do it to dig in a little bit deeper afterwards because we certainly in the time that we have don't have time to go through everything. And even if we did, this is sort of a one-sided thing, isn't it? I, I'm doing the preaching and you're doing the listening and hopefully you're doing nice active li listening like I encourage my students at college to do. I always say don't just be passive listeners. You know, actively think about what you're hearing and engage with the material. That's how you best learn. Um, so hopefully you're doing that, but still there's no interaction really going on. So if you look at these uh, questions for further study, they're the type of thing I probably would have done if we had a meeting um, afterwards, which you know we do other times of the year, and I encourage you to look at that uh, to try to dig a little bit deeper. But if you look at the other side of the sheet, um, at the top of the page, there's some information about the book in general, which you know I'm not going to go through. I'll leave uh, that for you to look at. And then there's some places where you can sort of fill in the blanks with some of the key points that I'm going to have during my message. And I encourage you, if you've got a pen or pencil, actually go through and fill in the blanks. If you don't, well, you can do it mentally. And again, hopefully that will help you to be able to sort of stay engaged and on point and thinking about what we're talking about. So, third John. Why, why should we care about 3 John? What, what does 3 John tell us? Why is it important in our lives? And, and the three things that, as I read and studied this, that you know, really stood out for me is first and foremost, um, well, not foremost, but one of the three things is uh, it's an encouragement. 3 John is an encouragement. And I think this might be one of the fill in the blanks. Yes, what do you know it is? Um, it's an encouragement towards living lives of humble, obedient faith while at the same time, loving others. Living lives of humble, obedient faith while at the same time loving others. Now that's something that is a general theme of John's epistles. And if you haven't done so recently and you're interested in it, I encourage you to go through and actually read all of John's epistles. There's not a lot. There's five relatively brief chapters in his first letter and then a single brief chapter in his second and his, and his third each. And so it won't take you very long. Um, but if you go through, you'll see these recurring themes of this idea of you know, believing the truth, having believed the truth about the Lord Jesus, living lives of obedience, of humility, of faith, and then as a natural outflow of that, loving other people. Uh, and doing both of those at the same time. There's this, uh, these twin themes of, of walking in God's truth 
and also walking in his love and showing that love towards other people. And that's a major theme of John's epistles, and it's also found in this epistle, and we're going to talk about it. We're also going to talk about the importance of finding a balance and doing both of those things at once. Some of us are so good on majoring on the truth. Not too much love for other people. Others of us, we have lots of love for other people, but we don't really know and believe and obey the truth necessarily. And, and the Lord wants us to be doing both of those. And he doesn't want us to be sort of doing one one day and one the other. He wants us to be doing both all the time in our lives, and he can help us to do that. Um, the second thing is to instruct us on if and how to support or not support Christian, and I'm putting Christians in quotes, Christian teachers and workers. Between the two epistles, and I am going to go back just briefly for contrast and look at John chapter 2. Most of our time will be in chapter 3. Uh, excuse me, I keep saying chapters. The, actually, John, Second uh, John and Third John. Um, but we're going to be taking a look and, and seeing something about how we're supposed to support those who at least supposedly are serving the Lord. And the last is to provide some clear, positive, and negative examples of first century believers to emulate or avoid the mistakes of. Um, there's some really great examples in this book uh, that we could do well to emulate and that we can learn a lot from. And there's also some hideous, there's a truly horrible example. And you might say, well, why, why do we even have to talk about this? But, you know, bad examples can be useful, right? I mean, you, you can learn something. You know, if I'm, if I'm trying to teach my kids to drive and I see someone swerving all over the place and they're going in and out of traffic and they're doing all the things they shouldn't do, well, that's a bad thing for them to be doing, but I can use that as an example. I can say, you see what that guy's doing? Don't do that because that's going to end up creating all kinds of problems for you and for other people. So bad examples can be useful. So those are the things that are sort of the key points that we're going to be talking about in the remaining time, the next half an hour that we have. Um, the author um, goes without saying. Uh, you certainly can look into this further, and I did, but I'm not going to, for the sake of time, talk about it very much. But the author is John, uh, the Apostle John, and there's multiple lines of evidence, both internal and external, that would say that this is the Apostle John who wrote this. He was one of the 12 disciples, the beloved disciple, disciple of the Lord Jesus. He wrote, of course, the Gospel of John, and probably at a, somewhere around the same time, we don't know exactly when, but probably at somewhere around the, time, the same time that he wrote the Gospel uh, John, he also wrote um, these epistles. Uh, he was a person who, by personality, was sort of of a, somewhat of a sensitive nature, perhaps, at least at some point in his life. But early in his life, he was described as one of the sons of thunder, as I believe Gordon pointed out last week. Um, he was, you know, sort of a Helen Brimstone kind of guy. He was a pretty, pretty vehement kind of person, a uh, very strong personality. A uh, may or may not have been someone you would have necessarily gotten, gotten along with. Uh, later on in life, he mellowed quite a bit and became a very, very gentle and loving person, I think largely because of the work of Christ in his life. Um, so let's go through and actually start taking a look at this. So the first four verses give us the first of the examples that I mentioned. It gives us the example of a fellow named Gaius. Uh, Third John chapter 1, the elder... Um, interesting that he calls himself the elder, right? He doesn't say the apostle, the disciple, the leader... Um, he takes a very humble position, um, which, again, wasn't necessarily John's nature to be humble like that, but the Lord had really done a work in his life, as he can in our, our lives. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and bore witness to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, hear of my children walking in the truth. And so um, some wonderful things here. First of all, do you notice that he talks about his health? He says, I'm praying for you to be in good health um, just as your soul prospers. So Gaius probably had some health problems. It's almost certain that he did, which is sort of instructive. Uh, some of you are older and have been through all this. Some of you are a little bit younger in the faith and aren't as familiar with Christian things. But if you are a little bit younger, maybe you haven't yet run across the fact that you're going to meet some Christians who will tell you that if you're a Christian, especially if you're a faithful Christian and you love the Lord Jesus and you're doing what you should be doing, you should never really have to deal with difficulty or illness or sickness. God has delivered us from all those things. That's what you might hear. But that's not scripture, and that's not scriptural, okay? 
And Gaius is an example of this, and he's certainly not the only example. There are plenty of people in Scripture who are very clearly love the Lord Jesus. They're believers. They're seeking to do God's will. They're excited about the Lord, and yet they get sick. Sometimes they get sick and they die, or they're injured, or they struggle in other ways. The Christian life is not a life of sort of just floating along with no pain, no difficulties, no illness. God has never promised us to that. He's promised to be with us in the midst of all that, to give us grace to help in time of need, to carry us through. He's promised all of that. He's promised to work all things together for good, even the bad things in our lives that we can't see how they're possibly working together for good. He's promised to work those together for good. But he hasn't promised that there won't be any bad things. Gaius experienced difficulties. John prayed something for him that I'm not sure we would have the courage to pray for ourselves. He prayed that Gaius's health would, would reflect his spiritual condition. How would you like that to be true of you? How would you like your health to always exactly parallel where you're at spiritually? So that if you're not doing so great spiritually, you're sick as a dog, you're limping. But if you're doing well, then you're healthy. How many of us would really want that to be the case? I got to be honest, I would hesitate about that. Because there's some times that spiritually I ain't doing so great. And it's sort of nice to be able to do physically well even during those times. But he prays that his health would parallel how he was walking with the Lord. Um, Notice, he also talks about the fact that Gaius was walking in the truth. He takes great joy in this. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear of my children walking in the truth. What does it mean to walk in the truth? Well, I can see already I'm running later than I want it to, so I'm not going to go to the passages I was going to in, in uh, 1 John. I would encourage you, at the very least, if you read nothing else of 1 John, go home and read the first chapter of 1 John, 1 John chapter 1. Because in it, we find some amazing things. We find that our fellowship is based on our relationship to the Lord Jesus. It's our knowledge of who he is and our faith and trust in who he is as both God Incarnate God, but also incarnate as man, and the one who died for our sins. That's the basis of our relationship, not just to him, but to each other. And so believing that is part of walking in the truth. Loving other believers is part of walking in the truth. Um, Walking in the truth doesn't imply, by the way, sinless perfection. Because again, if you go and you read that chapter, you'll find statements like, if we say we have no sin, we're lying If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when I say that we should be walking in the truth and Gaius was commended for walking in the truth, this is not to say walk sinlessly. I mean, that is God's perfect standard, but we don't hit that perfect standard. But as we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Even in our imperfections, as we seek to live For him and by him, we struggle, we fail at times, we seek and find forgiveness from our wonderful Father, and we move on in seeking to live for the Lord and love one another. Gaius was doing this, apparently. Gaius was walking in the truth, and we're going to see practical examples of that. Let's move on. Chapter, again, just one chapter. I keep wanting to say chapter. 3 John, uh, verse 5. Beloved, several times, I think four times in this epistle, he's called, uh, Gaius is called Beloved. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. And they bear witness to your love before the church, and you do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men that we may be fellow workers with the truth." So in this passage, we see two important things. For one, we we see the reality of Gaius' faith, because he wasn't someone who just believed the truth and put up a good front. He was someone who lived out what he believed. It, It speaks of these brethren who are strangers. These apparently were traveling teachers, people who were going around, traveling, you know, sometimes far from home for the sake of bringing the gospel or bringing a greater knowledge of the word of God to, to various ones in different places. Apollos is one of those examples of a traveling teacher. The Apostle Paul, for that matter, is an example of a traveling teacher in the New Testament. Well, as these people went around, they needed help, right? This was a very different society than we live in right now. They weren't carrying their credit card with us, with them. They weren't in their minivan. 
they were walking around various parts of the world, going door to door, basically, and they needed hospitality. They needed someone who would take them in, someone who would give them shelter, someone who would provide food for them, someone who would give them encouragement and help as they seek to serve in the local community. And then when they were done serving that community, they would move on to the next community, and once again, they would need someone to provide for them. They weren't rich people. They were rich in the Lord, but they weren't rich people, and they were just serving faithfully. So they needed people like Gaius, Someone who would show the reality of faith and take those people in and say, sure, you can stay here. I've got a room for you. Fix them a good hot meal. Give them what they needed while they were there and maybe even give them something a little bit more. It says that they, he does well to send them on their way in a matter worthy of God. That probably implies that he supplied at least some provisions or financial provision for them as they were leaving his home. And so he lived out his faith in how he dealt with these people. Um, so, and that actually turns out to be a rather important idea in this letter as well as in the prior letter. This idea of supporting those who are traveling around uh, sort of community to community. So I want to just look briefly, if we can, back to 2 John, because I think it's important for contrast. Because not all teachers are good teachers, right? I mean, people come to your door. Does everyone who comes to your door for a quote-unquote spiritual reason, are they all telling you the truth? I don't know about you, but that's not my experience. Um, and so we need to know how to deal with this. So in 2 John, uh, yes, yeah, 2 John, uh, chapter... Well, again, only one chapter. I, I keep falling into this trap. Uh, verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is to the deceiver and the Antichrist. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, this is now verse 9, does not have God, the one who abides in the teaching. He is both the Father and the Son. So these deceivers, as they're called, had moved past the truth and thought that they had moved on to something better. And they were no longer teaching the fact that Jesus Christ is the eternal God, also incarnate in the flesh. Um, in verse uh, 7, when it says that they do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh, that's actual, actually in the present tense. It's the idea of a continual action. They were not acknowledging that Jesus Christ had ever become flesh, they weren't acknowledging that he was God in the flesh, but they also weren't acknowledging that he continues to be that. Which, by the way, if you stop and think about that, isn't that sort of cool? I mean, Jesus Christ, the eternal God, the one who was there before time began, we know that he became a person. He was born of Mary as we celebrate Christmas time. He grew up to be a man. He died on the cross we know that. I think almost all of that, us here would know that and believe us. But do we realize that he's still a person? That he's still a human being? He didn't sort of come down, become man, and then when he died, sort of left the humanity behind and just went back to just being God and nothing but God. He's still a human being. He's still fully God. That never changed. But he's still a human being. There's actually a man in the glory who went there for us, and who, as a man, can function as a high priest interceding for us. That's an amazing truth to think about. But these deceivers, they were denying the reality of that. And so the advice that was given in 2 John is, if anyone comes to you, this is verse 10 of 2 John, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. That seems so unhospitable. That seems so, you know, intolerant, which I guess in our age is like the ultimate sin, right? You don't want to be intolerant. We all want to be tolerant and understanding. And it seems so intolerant. They come to your home or they come to your church and you're not supposed to do anything to help them or encourage them in any way, shape, or form. And that seems so intolerant. And it is intolerant, which is a good thing. Look, if someone, you know, comes door to door peddling candy to try to give to my kids, and I know it's laced with strychnine, it's not intolerant for me to shut the door in his face and call the police. That's not intolerant. That's me doing the right thing, okay? And when false teachers are coming around, it's not intolerant to refuse to do anything to help or encourage them, which is meant by giving them a greeting. Teachers need two things, right? They need an audience, 
and they need some provision for their daily lives to be able to do what they're doing. Those are the two things these traveling teachers need it. Any traveling teacher need it. And what, you were, what the instruction was in 2 John was don't give them either of those things. Don't give them an audience and don't give them any help. By contrast, going back now to 3 John, by contrast, Gaius was commended because he was helping these people, because he was doing what was necessary to help them along. And notice in verse 8 the reason why, well, really in verse 7 and 8, the reasons why it's good to do that. For one thing, they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. They weren't, they weren't doing anything to market themselves, to try to get money or support from those who didn't know the Lord Jesus. Probably because they didn't want it to appear that they were selling the gospel. They didn't want to give even the slightest hint that someone could earn their way to heaven by supporting them or by giving to the church or any other way. And so they were only accepting help from those who were believers in the Lord Jesus. This verse, and not only this verse, but this verse is one of the reasons why, at least to my understanding, our practice here at this assembly is we don't typically take offerings. Have, you know, if you've gone to other churches, you may notice that. Normally you go to a church and one of the things that happens is you get offerings. We do have an offering here, but that offering is only at the Lord's Supper. And the reason for that is because, well, twofold. One, we, we see that offering is actually an act of worship and the Lord's Supper is a time where we're gathering together to worship and remember the Lord Jesus, but also because it's believers who are pretty much the only ones who are typically there at that time. And we don't want to be looking for money to support the Lord's work from those who don't know the Lord himself. Uh, and that's what these people were doing. They were looking to the Lord to supply, but of course, while God can supply miraculously, he often supplies through us. And he was supplying their needs through people like Gaius. And we are also told we ought to support such men that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Think about that, being a fellow worker with the truth. You know, when we support those who are serving the Lord, we're supporting the Lord and his work. Think about these verses. This is from Matthew chapter 10. You can turn or not turn if you want. Matthew chapter 10 verses 40 through 42. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. The Lord Jesus says, he who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. Do you, do you follow the chain here? You know, if you receive me, that's like receiving God the Father who sent me. And if you receive the person who I send out, that's like you're receiving me. What does that mean? Well, that means Whatever I'm doing for another believer who is seeking to walk with and serve the Lord, the Lord Jesus takes that as if I did that to him. So we have this wonderful opportunity when we support and encourage each other and when we support and encourage those who are serving the Lord Jesus in other places, we have this wonderful opportunity to be receiving and doing what we do as if for the Lord Jesus himself. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Did you notice that there's a repetitive mention of reward? Why are these people getting rewards? Because they're receiving those who Jesus sent and providing for their needs, and the Lord Jesus takes that as if it was something being done directly for him. And here in verse 7, we really see the same, verse 8, excuse me, we see the same thing. Therefore, we ought to support such men. Why? So that we may be fellow workers with the truth. So if there's someone who's involved, look, we can't be every place and do everything, right? I mean, we are called to serve the Lord where we are. Please never make the mistake, you know, of th thinking, just because, you know, there's people who are out there doing cross-cultural ministry or even ministry within the culture, whether in this country and other countries, well, they're doing the work of the Lord and our job is to support them. That's actually not the situation. Our job is to serve the Lord where we are. There's plenty of people who don't know Christ that we have opportunities to reach right here where we are. There's plenty of people who do know the Lord Jesus and desperately need instruction or encouragement or practical helps. And we can be there to be the you know, hands and feet and arms and legs of Jesus to be able to provide that. And we should do those things. But we can't be every place and doing everything. 
And there are people that God has called to broader ministries, you know, whether people who we know here from Terra Road or people elsewhere, and we can be involved in those ministries. You know, we heard from Steve before. He's serving the Lord in Brazil. We know many other people serving the Lord in various places. Our sister Bethany in the Lord's will is going to be going through, uh, soon uh, to India. We know the Bristos who are serving uh, the Lord in Turkey, the Frenches who are down in Puerto Rico, and many, many other people. As we seek to help and encourage those people, and we can do that many ways. You can do that by maybe an email or a letter of encouragement, or if you see them in person, talking to them and, and speaking in a way that is encouraging and helpful to them. You can certainly do that with a financial gift. You can do that with some practical form of helping them out, maybe lending a missionary a car when they're back from the mission field if they don't have one, which I know some people here at the assembly have done. As we help those who are serving the Lord in practical ways, the Lord sees it as if we are part of that work directly. And the reward that comes from those servants as they serve the Lord, we will share, I believe, in that reward because we are involved in their ministry by helping them. That's not an excuse to not be doing the Lord's work ourselves where we are, but it is an opportunity for us to be involved in a much broader world of ministry as we help those who are serving the Lord in various places. Okay, that's, those are the good examples so far. Everything's been pretty positive up to now. Now we're going to get a little bit less positive. Now we move on. Now we move on. Oh, you know, I'm not sticking to my example uh, outline as much as I should have. Well, you'll figure that out, but I'm going to move on anyway because time is a wasting and I don't want to go back. Um, now we're going to look at verse 9, this fellow Diotrephes. And again, horrible example, uh, but we can learn a lot from his rather bad example. Uh, this is John writing to Gaius and saying, I wrote something to the church. So he would be speaking of the local church that probably both Gaius and Diotrephes were both members of. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, notice these attributes of Diotrephes. Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. So this is the Apostle John with apostolic authority, a disciple of the Lord Jesus himself, and he writes to the Diotrephes, and Diotrephes says, oh, forget that. I'm not listening to that. I don't care what he has to say. Verse 10, for this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does. I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall when that happened. Unjustly accusing us with wicked words... So it's not just that he ignored what John said, but he was basically trash-talking John, um, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, excuse me, um, and not satisfied with this, neither does he himself receive the brethren, so he's not willing to take in these traveling teachers as Gaius did. He's not willing to provide them with any form of hospitality or help, and he forbids those who desire to, so he's telling other people, you know, follow my bad example, basically, and don't take these people in and don't help them, and puts them out of the church. And so if someone dares to defy Diotrephes' uh, authority and do the right thing, and provide support for these uh, traveling evangelists and teachers, they get excommunicated. They get kicked out of the church for their trouble of doing the right thing. So this man is, is setting just about the worst example in, in this particular context that you could think of. Now, Diotrephes is evidently a leader. He's maybe a, a recognized elder that wouldn't be surprised. Um, he loves his position. He loves being seen as great and important. Um, and this is a major, major issue. Now, he may have been you know, an early example of a dangerous trend that, that, you know, has occurred over the years in the church, where instead of having, you know, a local church autonomous and being ruled by a group of um, elders, you know, all pretty much on the same plane, all together, under shepherds, under the Lord Jesus, under his authority, in humility, leading the flock, instead there was a trend for a single person within a congregation or within a group of elders to sort of become elevated and become the one that everyone looked to. Um, and if that person helped, happened to be a nice and humble and gentle person, maybe that would work out okay, even though it's, I don't think it's stri uh, strictly scriptural. But if that person was self-absorbed and tyrannical, as was the situation here, that was a very bad thing, and that's what happened here. So Diotrephes is in marked contrast, actually, 
to the teaching and example of the Lord Jesus and his uh, uh, disciples and apostles. So again, um, this time in the Gospel of Mark, uh, reading something that the Lord Jesus wrote, Mark chapter 10, verse 42, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And Diotrephes was certainly doing this. He was lording it over people. <clears throat> Their great men exercise authority over them. It's not so among you. Whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. Diotrephes was not exactly a servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you, and Diotrephes did want to be first, shall be slave of all. I don't know that Diotrephes ever read this passage, or if he did, he was certainly ignoring it. Verse 45 of Mark 10, For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The Lord Jesus Christ came to be a servant. This is what I remind myself of, quite frankly. When, when pride starts to stir in my heart, when I start feeling you know, pretty puffed up and pretty good about myself, and why don't other people recognize how important I am and st- stupid stuff like that, you know what I remind myself of? I remind myself that the Lord Jesus was a humble servant. Do I think I'm more important than Jesus? Do I think I'm smarter than Jesus? Do I think I'm greater than Jesus? If he could be a humble servant, who in the world do I think I am that I can't be a humble servant? This is something that we should really be thinking about a lot. So, Diotrephes was a bad example, but you can learn from bad examples. And I'm, I'm going to read this one for once from my notes so that I stay on target a little bit more. Um, here's three ways, I think, that we can learn from the bad example of Diotrephes. And this applies perhaps particularly to leaders. I think some of this is applicable to anyone. And also think about this. You're all probably either are or will have the opportunity at some point in your life to be a leader. Okay, you may or may not ever be an elder in the local church, but you know, if you have kids, you're a leader. If you're a camp counselor, you're a leader. If you have the opportunity to disciple or encourage other people who don't know the Lord yet or have come to know the Lord and are new in the faith, you're a leader. If you teach a Sunday school class, even just occasionally, you're a leader. If you're involved in youth ministry, you're a leader. If you're involved in ministry among the women here, you're a leader. So I would say that the vast majority of people here, maybe everyone here, either has been or will have the opportunity to be a leader. So let's learn from this bad example of leadership. First of all, Diotrephes, he wanted to be first. Are we sometimes, and we need to be honest here, are we sometimes focused on how our ideas are received, how we look, how central our ministry is? Isn't that really easy to fall into that trap? People aren't noticing what I'm doing. No one seems to care about what I'm doing. They care about what these other people are doing, but they don't care about what I'm doing. How easy it is for us to do that. How easy it is for us in our own minds, even if we would never, ever say this out loud, to make it all about us and to be focused on ourselves. Diotrephes made that mistake. Instead, we can seek to be servant leaders, as Jesus was, looking for the glory of God, the good of others, and rejoicing in the work of others for Christ. That was what the Lord Jesus was about. He was concerned about God's glory. He was concerned about other people's good. And he was happy when he saw other people also serving the Lord. We should be the same way instead of thinking it's all about us. Diotrephes refused to submit to the authority of the apostles. Now, we, ha- we don't have apostles living here today, but the authority of the apostles has been preserved um, basically in the New Testament. So we need to ask ourselves, do we sometimes put our ideas or those of our culture on par with or maybe even above the authority of Scripture? Because that's an easy trap to fall into. You know, we've got ideas, whether those we've absorbed from our culture or those we've come up with our own self, or, or, or on our own, of how things ought to be done, how we should live our lives, how other people should live our lives. Is that what we're looking for to, or are we submitting to the authority of Scripture? You know, just quickly, I can tell you a personal anecdote along that way. Many, many, many years ago, probably like 30 years ago, which is making me feel old because I wasn't a kid 30 years ago, 
Um, but probably about 30 years ago, I was a young believer, young in the faith. I had just moved into this area. I was struggling with some things from scripture and, and various things. I was struggling a lot of different ways, emotionally, spiritually. I, I, I was having a difficult time in my life. And um, one of the people who I went to talk to was, was someone who's probably familiar to a number of you, a, a man named Kingsley Bear, who has since gone home to be with the Lord. And I, I went over to his place one, one evening, and the two of us were chatting, and, or maybe it was over at Cedarcroft Chapel that we met. But we were chatting, and you know, as we were talking, he looked at me at one point, and he was a very gracious, kind person, um, but he looked at me at one point, and he says, you know, Larry, you have a problem. He says, you have a really, really good mind, but your problem is you're not submitting that mind to the scriptures and to the Lord Jesus. And that's part of what your problem is. And of course, I didn't want to hear that, but he was right. You know, it's, it's good to be able to be knowledgeable. It's good to have a good education. I have a reasonably good education, and I can put letters after my name. It's good to have a good mind and be able to think things out, and the Lord never calls us to throw our minds away. He invites us to bring our minds to his word and use our minds, but we need to be submitted to the authority of the word of God, and in the end, we need to be under his authority if we're going to make any progress and if we're going to bear fruit for him. Last but not least, he was a poor example. He actually sought to force people down the wrong paths spiritually. What a horrible thing for a leader to do. You know, that's like a shepherd taking his sheep and leading them off the cliff. You know, very, very bad. If we're going to be leaders, instead we can act as examples worthy of imitation, which can be scary to think that people are imitating us, but people are imitating us, so you better be careful the example you have, and we can seek to stimulate and encourage others to do good. So hopefully we can learn something from the bad example of Diotrephes. So in closing, and I'm actually going to make it pretty much on time. In closing, you know, look, our, our lives are not perfect. We have our struggles. We're all works in progress. If you know the Lord Jesus, you know perfectly well that coming to Christ doesn't mean your problems disappear and you instantaneously become this good, perfect, holy, happy person who never struggles again and never does anything wrong. It would be really nice if it happened that way, but it doesn't. Um, so we all have our struggles. We're all works in progress. But if we are willing to look into the word of God, to fix our eyes on Jesus, to live lives of humble, obedient faith and love for others according to the word of God, and if we're willing to you know, be used of God, both to do his work directly and support and encourage other people, the Lord will appreciate us, just like John appreciated Gaius. We will bear fruit that will last for eternity, and we will find joy and reward in him that we will not find any other way in life. So I encourage you, those of you who know Christ, to seek to do that. Now, I do have one very brief word just to mention, and again, I look out in the audience, and I know most of you, not all of you well, but I know most of you, and most of you, I think, know Christ. But just as a reminder, pretty much everything I've said here has been directed to Christians. And that's because this letter was directed to Gaius, who was a Christian, dealing with issues that were going on in a local Christian church. If you don't know Christ as Savior, while some of this may be nice examples and helpful information, you don't have a prayer, maybe that's a pun, you don't have a prayer of being able to live any of this stuff out. We need the Spirit of God living within our lives, guiding us and enabling us to be able to live this stuff out. You can't do this on your own. It's not possible. So if you don't know Christ as Savior, you need to seriously consider your need to come and embrace Christ. The Christian life is not an easy life, as I've been describing, but it's the only life there is. Everything else is living death. Okay, you think you're alive, but you're not really all that alive, and in the end, you'll experience you know, true eternal death after this life is over. The Lord Jesus, in one of my favorite verses, which I was just looking at this morning because it hangs on a plaque above my desk, says um, in Matthew, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. To those who don't know Christ here, that's Christ's message to you. Come to him. Notice, it's not come to a system, come to an organization, come to a set of beliefs. It's come to a person. It's come to the Lord Jesus and find rest from the burden of sin. And if you don't think sin is a burden, think about some of the destructiveness that some of the things that either you or other people have done wrong, contrary to God's will, has wrecked in your life or that of others. Destroyed lives, 
wrecked relationships, wrecked bodies. Sin is a mess, and it makes a mess of us. Jesus invites us to come and find rest. And then if you go on in that passage, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my load is light. That second half is what is really we're being called from that passage and also I think from this passage to lives of trust and obedience, living under his lordship and finding out all the things that he can do in and through us. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you again for your love. We thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus. We literally would not be here, or at least I certainly would not be here if it wasn't with him and for him. I shudder to think what my life would be or if I'd even be alive um, knowing what my life was like before Christ if it wasn't for you. I just thank you, and each of us thanks you for your son. We thank you for the wonderful, perfect life he lived. We thank you for his humility, the fact that even though he was the greatest of the great, um, he lived a life of humility. He lived a life of service. He actually at one point got down on his hands and knees and washed his disciples' feet to teach them a lesson in humility. We thank you that he who was great was willing to become a servant. We thank you that he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, that he died in our place. Father, I just pray that if there's anyone here, any single person here who doesn't know Christ as Savior, that you would open their hearts and draw them to the point of coming to him and finding rest for their souls. Father, for those of us who do know Christ as Savior, we just pray that you would help us to consider the message of this little letter, maybe to go back home and read it for ourselves, to look at some of the questions, to think it through, and that, Lord, you'd help us to, to live these things out, to be people like Gaius who walked in the truth. He didn't just know the truth. He didn't just believe the truth. He walked in the truth as an expression of walking in the truth. He loved other people. He loved and supported other believers and those who were doing your work. Lord, help us to be like him. Help us to believe and know the truth, to be walking in accordance with it, um, and yet at the same time, to be those who would love you and be following you and be seeking to do your will. We pray for your help to have this balance, speaking the truth in love, that we might be like the Lord Jesus, he who was full of grace and truth, he never threw away the grace for the sake of the truth or the truth for the sake of the grace. But Lord, he, he perfectly lived out your word and yet was loving and kind to others. Help us to find that same balance in our lives um, as your son, the Lord Jesus, had perfectly, as Gaius had perhaps less perfectly. And help us, Lord, to emulate these, these good models. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.